Hey everyone, thank you for tuning in. Welcome to the Prayer House Podcast. Our mission and vision is to spread the gospel and good news to the ends of the world by building a community whose foundation is on Jesus Christ. So welcome to the family. We hope you enjoy this message. I'm going to go dive into our first question, so I'm going to read it off. Um, is modesty subjective or objective? What impact What impact cultural perception of modesty have on a church upbringing and to what extent should subjective modesty be enforced? Yeah, I think it's a very, very, very relevant question. I think it's also a very pertinent question to our time. I just want to give thanks to God, first of all, for this wonderful opportunity that he's given all of us to come and have meaningful discussions, because I think nothing gets solved when you don't have meaningful, objective, Bible-based discussions. So for all my answers today, um, I'll try to give you a scripture passage that uh, that I feel uh, has been useful in my pursuit of the truth. And so I, I hope that the scripture passages will kind of help you navigate along these difficult waters with me. So the answer to this question can best be found in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 9 through 10. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 9 through 10. This is what the Bible says. In like manner also, that the women adorn themselves in modest apparel with propriety, and moderation with propriety and moderation not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly clothing but which is proper for women professing godliness with good works so in in, in an important aspect i think of this scripture passage is that modesty is much more about your attitude and your intentions than it is about all the extravagance that, that we think about. So first of all, notice here that modesty in this concept is not just for people within the church, right? Look, it doesn't say when you go to church or when you're in a worship service. What does it say? It says women must be modest with propriety and moderation everywhere so not just when you come to church but everywhere you go when you go to school when you go to work when you go out with your friends there needs to be an attitude of modesty and moderation and propriety what is appropriate the word propriety means what is proper for the situation having what i would call just common situational sense so the best way to look at it i think is to examine your attitude towards your dressing style so let's divide this into god-oriented dressing style and then self-oriented dressing style and i'm just going to compare and contrast briefly so you can kind of see where my head is at self-oriented dressing style is dressing to impress Okay, but God oriented dressing style is dressing to impact somebody's life. So whatever I need to do to leave a godly impact on that person, that's what I will do. Versus somebody who's self-oriented will say, I need to dress to impress. For example, let's like we shouldn't just think about women in this case, but I'll, I'll use women primarily in this uh, in this scenario to demonstrate my point. So let's say a woman is dressing in a revealing way, or uh, let's call it immodest, but more appropriately, a revealing dressing style. That's a very self-oriented dressing style. And here's why, before you start to stone me, the reason I say that is because what is your intentionality behind wearing revealing clothes? It is to do what? 
right? So the intentionality will matter. Are you doing it to draw attention to yourself? Are you doing it to show that your beauty is, is of a physical nature? Uh, my question to all the girls and all the women on the conference call would be, is your beauty only dependent on your physical attributes? Of course not. Not one woman in this conference would say, yeah, of course it is. Not one of us would say that. Not one of us would agree that beauty is of the physical attributes only. Each and every one of us would agree that beauty is much more than your physical attributes. So in order to look beautiful, if I dress in an immodest way that is revealing, then the question becomes, am I doing it to make the statement that my beauty is of a physical nature and only of a physical nature? You see what I'm saying? A godly woman will understand that according to 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20, that her body is the temple of God, that she'll honor it with all modesty, that she will only reveal her body to the person that the Lord has given her body to and, and also attributed someone else's body into her uh, responsibility and her authority. At the same time, you're doing this to show people the love of Jesus. So if I'm witnessing to somebody and I'm wearing revealing clothing, you can see why that's a problem here because you have taken away their attention from your witness. So in short, if your dressing style contradicts your witness, we have a problem. At the same time, if your dressing style is so revealing, uh, you have honestly somehow cheapened your beauty. You've cheapened it to just the physical attribute. That's why the Bible says, do it in a better way by showing godliness, but your adornment is with good works. How well you do, how well you live life is how best you will be perceived as beautiful. Thank you. Thank you, Sister Angel. Um, so the next question um, would be, um, should multicultural inclusivity be a standard for all churches or is it okay for some churches to remain culturally exclusive? Um, yeah. and the question is, aren't churches meant to grow and eventually become multicultural because it reflects um, heaven? Yeah, it's a great question, actually. Whoever wrote that, thank you. Um, I also want to say in the course of this Q&A, if you have follow-up uh, thoughts or if you have follow-up questions, uh, you are most welcome to uh, type it into the Q&A box that you see on your screen. And then when we have time towards the end, if we do, I'll be happy to respond to any follow-up thoughts or questions. In answer to this question, I'm going to point you to the book of Acts chapter 2, verses 5 and 6. Here's what the Bible says in Acts 2, verses 5 and 6. And there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. This is the day of Pentecost, y'all. From every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, which sound? The sound of the noise that the people of God were making, the 120 when they were speaking in tongues, that sound, when that sound occurred, the Bible says the multitude came together because they were confused. Every man had heard them speak in his own language. And verse 11 says they had heard the wonderful works of God. Of course, as the, as the questioner pointed out, the kingdom of heaven is uh, is, 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 a, is a place where every nation under heaven will be present. Am I correct? Absolutely. So if the kingdom of heaven is what we are looking forward to and the modern day church, the body of Christ, the global body of Christ is a symbolic image of what is to come. 
If the church is meant to reflect the kingdom of God, then yes, the church should open its borders, open its doors to every nationality, regardless of who you are. And by the way, no, there should not be any exclusivity to church because the culture of the church does not belong to any particular cultural domain the culture of the church is purely based on the scriptures and if the scriptures are universal then the cultures of christians i'm not talking about indian christians american christians spanish christians african christians i'm talking about children of god who are ready to go to heaven your culture primarily is a christian culture based on scripture so there should be no other worldly earthly cultural exclusivity that narrows down your church pool your church must be open to all people just like the cross was open to all people and thank you angel before we go to the next question just to want to give uh, uh announcements to everybody that are on youtube um guys if you have some, if you guys have any questions please uh put it on the comment section we will put it on here i uh, just want to remind you guys you can do that and also if you're watching later on if you have any questions please uh message us directly through instagram or our website uh ben you can go sorry um, the next question is going to be a little like about multicultural. So it's going to go into relationships. So multicultural relationships often cause broken relationships, um, backlash from families. So to what extent should a multicultural couple seeking marriage um, who have prayed or received confirmation uh, continue moving forward if there are severe issues in their families or church? It's, it's a tough question. Uh, thanks to whoever asked that question. I think it's a valid question because in this day and age, there's cultural uh, differences in our country. We live in a melting pot. I can see how multicultural marriages can be difficult. But uh, as always, scripture always has the answer. I believe that, you guys. I truly believe that the Bible has all the answers. Romans chapter 14, verses 2 through 4. I'm going to read for you. For one believes he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats only vegetables. Let not him who eats despise him who doesn't eat. And let not him who does not eat judge him who does eat, for God has received him. Verse 4, who are you to judge another's servant? To his own master he stands or falls. Indeed, he will be made to stand, for God is able to make him stand. This is a very interesting passage because in the church of the Romans, Paul had to deal with multiculturalism. There were various traditions. Some were vegetarians, some ate meat, some uh, honored particular days of the year, some did not honor particular days of the year, some were confused about circumcision, some were convinced that it's not necessary, so on and so forth. In a diverse church, Paul had to directly address their cultural problems. So to do this, I'm going to give you four quick points. Number one, Notice here that when somebody has a different cultural standpoint, I'm talking about families only, okay? I, I cannot, I don't have time to address 
church and outside interactions, but families only. So within a family, if you have another person who has a different cultural viewpoint, if someone has a different cultural viewpoint from yours and you're married to somebody who is of a different culture or you are interacting with an in-law or a brother-in-law, sister-in-law, somebody, a, a cousin, somebody who's of a different culture, number one, remember that God loves that person as he is or as she is. Look what it says here. God has received him. The second thing I want to show you is God not only loved that person to die for him, God has received that person as he is or as she is. So my question to you is, what is your reluctance in accepting that person as he is or as she is? Right? Because look what it says. God has received him. God has accepted that person just as they are with all their different cultural differences. God has accepted them. So my suggestion is, as a family, as a brother, as a sister, a husband, a wife, a mother, a father, whoever you are, you must learn to receive them as they are, just as God did. And furthermore, I'm going to skip down to verses 14 and 15. Look what it says. I know and I am convinced by the Lord Jesus Christ, there is nothing unclean of itself. But to him who considers something to be unclean, to him it's unclean. Yet if your brother is grieved because of your food, in other words, if somebody is grieved because of what you believe in, you are no longer walking in love. Look, if my cultural point of view becomes something that causes you grief, meaning I'm imposing my cultural viewpoint on you. Let's say, you, you know, I have a husband who is American and I'm Indian, right? And if I'm enforcing my cultural viewpoint on my husband, and if he is grieved from my cultural enforcements, then look what it says. I am no longer walking in love. I'm no longer walking in love. So there's no love in a family that is stubborn and, uh, and, and contingent upon certain cultural practices. You cannot be so rigid in what you believe to be your cultural practice that you want the, uh, the rest of the household to follow that. If you do that, you're not walking in love. Then it goes on to say, do not destroy with your food. In other words, don't destroy with your culture the one for whom Christ has died. My friend, if you have a different cultural viewpoint and you are pushing it on somebody beyond the Bible and you're grieving them to the point where you're leading to their destruction, you're not even walking in love at this point. God is warning you, remember that love never destroys. If there is love in this marriage, if there's love in this family, if two different cultures and two different families have come together and there's truly love there, you guys prayed and God gave you confirmation of love and all that, then remember that love never destroys one another. But by pushing each other, you will end up destroying each other. That's why the Bible gives you a solution. Here's your common ground. The common ground is the kingdom of God is not in eating or in drinking. In other words, it's not based on your culture. But righteousness, the goal of a family, the goal of a family, your pursuit, how far should you go? You should go as far as righteousness. You should go as far as the next thing is the goal would be peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Any, any family should strive for these three things, righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Find your common ground, which is Jesus Christ and the kingdom of God. At the end of the day, you're all children of God. God has loved each one of you. God has received and accepted each one of you as you are. And God is telling you that love will never destroy each other. 
and the goal is to pursue righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. So the question is, does the Holy Spirit reside in every one of your hearts? If he doesn't, that's why your multiculturalism is tearing you apart. Amen, amen. That was a good, that was a good answer. Thank you so much for answering. Um, the next question is uh, a little bit towards the Indian community, but I think it's relevant for all community in general, but mainly in the Malayali slash Indian community, it's pretty relevant. So uh, the question is, uh, should I always wear a head covering in church? Uh, this is mainly towards uh, females. And also, just as a follow-up question to it, is uh, can I wear uh, jeans and sneakers in church? Does God look at the heart? And if my heart is pure, why does it matter? It doesn't matter what I wear. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thanks, Jaren. You packed two like serious questions into one. But I'm going to try to address the head covering separately from jeans and sneakers. Uh, one, they're two different clothing categories, Jaren. No, I'm kidding. Two, I think we have to use two different scriptures to interpret this. But I'll do my best with, within the time constraint. So the first thing I want to show you guys, based on 1 Corinthians 11, I, I know asked me earlier, is this the most commonly asked question you get? You bet it is. I get this all the time. And so because I get it all the time, I've studied this a lot, this scripture passage from 1 Corinthians 11, 3 to 16. I have read this over and over and over and over and over again um, without outside input. I've, I've looked at it and then I looked at outside input as well. So I'll, I'll give you three, uh, three things to look at. Number one, this passage is not even about head coverings. The subject of this passage, I should say, is not head coverings. The subject of this passage is chain of command. The point of this passage, I'm going to encourage you to please uh, take some time tonight and at least read it three times. Can you do that for me? For verses 3 down to 16. It's only half a chapter. I, I, you can do it, right? It's only half a chapter. Uh, I want you to read it at least three times. If you can do that, I think you'll get, you'll get it. You'll, you will not be confused anymore. Number one, this passage is about chain of command. And here's what the chain of command looks like. God the Father. God, the son, God, the son being Jesus Christ, right? Then comes man, then comes woman. I know that there's probably a group of you that are, that are questioning why God put man ahead of woman. You'll have to take that up with God, right? Because I didn't come up with the system, but this scripture passage, if I was to interpret it objectively, right? Without bringing any of my female bias into the Bible. Dare you not do that. I have always warned all the listeners on Prayer House to leave the Bible as it is. You do not have any authority to alter this by inputting your biases. So without any female bias, if I looked at it, then the chain of command is literally God the Father, God the Son, the man of the household and the woman of the household. That's the first thing I want to show to you. The second thing I want to show you is that this scripture passage does not apply to all people. It applies to families, right? Because look what the Bible says. You wear the head covering in honor of whom? Is it in honor of God? Does a woman wear a head covering in honor of God? Is that what the Bible says here? It says you do it in honor of your husband who is your head. So as a woman whose head is the man, the Bible says you wear your head coverings. I brought demonstration purposes, my head covering. Uh, it just thought it would be interesting. So when you wear your head covering, you're doing it in honor of your head who is your husband. So remember that this only applies 
to families, right? To married couples. Now, when I see a two-year-old innocent girl in our churches with, with the head covering on, I don't know why, but I always question and wonder, I wonder whom this head covering is honoring. So I always wonder that. Um, but I'm also going to point out the second point here. The second point of this passage, the head covering passage, is that it is a sign of submission. So just first of all, looking at the fact that it's a chain of command and this is for families. Second of all, this is about a showing your submission in an outward manner, right? Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22 says, Wives, submit to your husband as unto the Lord. Wow. So you submit to your husband as you would submit to the Lord. I'm sure, I'm sure most wives would have trouble with this. Um, if I could meet a wife who has not had trouble with this, you would be my hero. Uh, I've been married now for a little over a year, and I will tell you it's the hardest thing I've ever done, submitting to somebody as I would submit to God. Most people that know me know that I am not that person. But God is humbling me. God is removing my pride. God is uh, you know, sucking my ego out of me, and he's truly making me a humble person, and it's painful. Thirdly, it's not a universal mandate, meaning that it doesn't apply pan-culturally. Verse 16 says, if anyone seems to be contentious about this issue, let it be known that we have no such custom, nor do the churches of God. Meaning that he is writing this passage specifically to the Corinthian church and that the other churches of God or he himself, he says, we, we have no such custom, nor do the churches of God. So he's specifically addressing the Corinthian culture. Now, all the Malayali people and all the Tamil people or other Indian, Indian people listening to me, let me just address you quickly. If this is a cultural matter, right? Because at this point in our Malayali culture and our Tamil culture and other, other Indian cultures, it has become a cultural matter. Wearing a head covering is no longer just a biblical thing it becomes a cultural thing at this point it has become a part of our culture our culture has evolved in such a way uh, now if i say to myself i'm not going to wear this head covering because i don't think it's right and now you have offended everybody in that room my question to you is was it worth it was it worth it for you to not wear this and lose every person in that room, right? When I go, go stand up to preach, if I don't put this on in an Indian church, I lose my audience, meaning they're not listening to me. Nothing that I say goes in here or in here. I have lost an opportunity to preach the gospel. So if I could just do this, if I could just do this, they'll listen. So my thing is, if all I had to do was put this thing on to get you to listen to the word of God, then yeah, I'll do whatever I need to do to get to you because I love you and I will honor what you think is right if you would listen to the word of God. Now, when I go to an American church, if I put this thing on, they'll stare at me for 30 minutes and nothing I said went in here or in here. They're confused by this, so I don't wear this because that becomes a hindrance to them. So my, my short answer would be uh, use discretion. My big answer would be there is much more to the scripture passage than just a head covering. This is about submission to God and submission to leadership within a family. 
The second question, wearing jeans and sneakers to church. I think I pretty much kind of addressed that. So I'm going to give you a very short answer. I gave you that answer in the first question when we looked at 1 Timothy 2, 9 and 10, right? Whatever you're doing, do it with the, with the orientation of bringing glory to God. So if you're wearing jeans and sneakers just to prove to people that you can do it, what have you really accomplished? I'm not really sure. If you're doing it to say, oh, I'm super comfortable in this. I know it bothers everybody, but I'm comfortable. That sounds like you're self-oriented. Once again, I'm asking you to have a God mindset. What is best in this situation? How do I gain people for Christ? If wearing jeans and sneakers hinders somebody from coming to the cross or hinders somebody from hearing my witness, my witness at the end of the day is what matters. If my dressing hinders my witness, then throw the dressing in the garbage because time's running out. Jesus is coming back. I better do my part and witness to you and bring glory to God's name. Now, if I dress a particular way and that enables you to come to the cross, yeah, I'm going to do it. That's why Paul says, I became all things to all men. So in short, be all things to all men. Be willing to sacrifice, be willing to compromise. Do what you need to do to bring people to Jesus Christ. Use the discretion of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you for that answer. I mean, I think, again, like like I asked before, is that a popular question with the um, head covering? And I think, like, finally I got a detailed answer that I think made complete sense. Like, so I want to thank you for that, like, detailed explanation. I think, like, again, a theme with a lot of this is also, like, you know, are you being a hindrance? You know, what is the intention and in how, you know, and again, like you said, it's a lot of compromise. It does take a lot of work. Like, what might be comfortable and okay with me might be a hindrance to somebody else. And so, like, you know, at the end of the day, like, how are you glorifying God and how are you honoring God? And, um, you know and 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 like are you bringing people closer to god versus like hindering them and like taking them away um mm -hmm. so again thank you for um those answers so to kind of go on a similar um uh avenue with uh, with the question so the next question is um what does the bible say about ornaments in church is there a limit to be too much uh why do some churches preach against ornaments but people come in with expensive suits dresses watches and cars um and a, kind of like a follow-up uh with that is there is um is there anything against um nails being done as long as it's decent like for events such as weddings and special events mm -hmm. good really good good thought processes you guys are showing really good critical thinking and i just really appreciate people who think well so thank you to whoever asked this question first peter chapter three verses three to five i will read for you as a scripture base and then we'll discuss from there wives likewise be submissive to your own husbands i love how it says your own husbands okay sometimes wives have a problem with that they listen to everyone but their own husbands so if you're if you're married notice here your own husband that even if some do not obey the word of god they without a word may be won by the conduct of their wives now look again this is about gaining a soul for for the kingdom okay remember that the, we always like to take context out but again he's saying if you have a husband who doesn't obey the word of god to gain him back your conduct matters now he says when they observe your chaste conduct accompanied by fear they will do what they will believe in the lord do not let your adornment be merely outward Hash, uh, a big highlight, a big round circle, multiple just like bold circles around the word merely, merely outward, arranging your hair, wearing gold or putting on fine apparel. Rather, 
let it be the hidden person of the heart with the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious in the sight of God. Now, listen, there's a, there's a whole bunch of people I will end up offending because I know that I was raised in a Pentecostal home. Um, and so when I came to these conclusions based on honest study of the word of God, I ended up offending a lot of people. Uh, people told me that I should not even be in ministry because I believe in these things. So I've heard it all. There's nothing more you can say that's going to hurt my feelings. Sticks and stones don't break my bones. So number one, makeup and jewelry does not equate to sin. Makeup is not sin. Jewelry is not sin. Wearing ornaments does not disqualify you from the kingdom of heaven. It's not like you walk up to the gates of heaven with uh, ornaments on and they stop you and they're like, you must remove before you walk through the scanner. There's no metal detector at the gate of heaven to detect if you are carrying ornaments or if you wore ornaments while you were on earth. Number two, I want to say though, on the contrary to what I just said, cultural offense is a sin. While makeup and jewelry are not equal, are not are not equal to sin, as in you're not sinning by wearing makeup and jewelry, you are sinning by culturally offending someone intentionally. Like you know that they believe in this strongly and you just want to walk in just to do just to you know show them that you can just to prove a point. Cultural offense, intentional, malicious intent uh, with, with your cultural offense is a sin. So notice here, I want to di dis dissect this very, very quickly. It says, number one, don't let it be merely outward, merely outward, meaning that you shouldn't stop at outward. There are a group of people who don't wear any jewelry, but look what it says. You should have a gentle and quiet spirit. Okay, that's interesting. So you don't wear jewelry, but you don't listen to uh, your, your mom and dad. You don't obey your mom and dad. You have no respect for any authority in the church or at home. You are certainly not gentle and you for sure are not quiet. Have you really qualified for the kingdom just because you didn't wear jewelry? No, right? So what is he really saying? What is the Lord really teaching us here? He's really teaching us that our focus must never be on the outward. That's why the Bible says God doesn't look at the face. So I could have the greatest makeup and I, God is blind to it all, right? What is he looking at? He's looking at the incorruptible beauty of my heart, a gentle and quiet spirit. Now, if you think about it, people who have a gentle and quiet spirit, in general, already automatically, almost naturally know when to stop. If I'm going to use makeup, they know when to stop because they have a gentle and they have a quiet spirit. That spirit, that mentality, that attitude dictates how they portray themselves, how they dress themselves, how they wear their makeup, how much jewelry they use. If you just walk into a church, just metal clanging everywhere, and you look like you're a model for like, for like Dubai's fine jewelry store, you have not accomplished anything. And I keep saying this over and over again. If something tarnishes your witness or if something hinders your witness, what have you really gained by your jewelry? I know that coming from a Tamil family, ornaments equals respect. This is what it is. If you add the more ornaments you wear, the more respected you are. That tells me that there's an element of pride driving my love for ornaments. So I put all this on. Why? Because I have a certain social standing I want to maintain, right? But I thought you're dead to yourself. Aren't you supposed to be dead to yourself and alive to Jesus Christ? 
nothing matters. I count everything garbage. So uh, if you ask me, my personal standpoint has been this. I don't wear jewelry. Uh, I, I don't wear jewelry at all uh, on a normal everyday life basis because I find it more convenient. To be honest, I just find it easier to manage without jewelry. I do wear my wedding ring because it honors my commitment to Jesus and to my husband, whom the Lord united me with. Now, I know that this piece of jewelry doesn't disqualify me from the kingdom. What it has really done is that it has shown my husband that I love and appreciate our marriage to each other. I don't wear this as a symbol of pride. I wear it as a symbol of love. So my question one more time to you is what are your intentions behind your jewelry? Why are you doing it? Right? Same thing with your nails. You walk into some people's uh, homes or, you know, you walk into wedding halls and man, like some people have like scary looking nails. And I'm just like, what are you trying? What are you trying to say? Are you trying to what, what attention exactly are you trying to draw to yourself? So once again, I'm going to once again remind you propriety. What is appropriate? Propriety, moderation. Keep it simple. Keep it simple. Don't elevate yourself because people who elevate themselves usually feel like they have no worth on the inside. But if you recognize your worth on the inside, you wouldn't feel the need to do all this hoopla and extravagance to just stand out of the crowd. Automatically you'll stand out because the Lord is within you and he will portray his love through you. Awesome. Thank you. Well put, you know, this question is something that, you know, goes all around, especially in the Indian uh, Penti Malayali community where churches split because of this. And there's so many issues that goes on with this topic. So well put. Uh, it's a great answer. Thank you so much for answering. Uh, those who are not, you know, Malayali or Indian in general, just want to give you a heads up. This is something that are, is a prevalent in the Indian Penti community is something that a lot of Penti people don't wear uh, ornaments. And that's the reason why we're asking these questions. So we're going to go to next questions, more generic, and it's open to all churches in general. Uh, the question is, uh, does the Bible mention that church should have a schedule for all process? For example, timely worship, time sermon, or is it like, is there like, oh, is there a certain way that you should have music first, worship first, then preaching or preaching first and message? Is there any particular order that it's in the Bible or there should be no order at all? First uh, Corinthians chapter 14, verse 40. Let all things be done decently and let all things be done in order. Uh, does this mean that we hold on to hard and fast rules? No, right? Like, do you think the Lord would um, look at your worship and be like, oh, he, you know, so-and-so should have preached first and so your worship is disqualified? No, right? Uh, do you think the Lord disregards your worship while you're singing in your shower? No, right? He doesn't disregard that because he loves the sound of your voice. He loves the heart behind your songs. Uh, does he disregard your worship when you're jamming in the car and you're thinking about the goodness of the Lord and having church all by yourself? I do it all the time on my way to work every day. No, right? There's no particular order in the sense that this has to go before that, before that. God doesn't care. He wants genuine worship that is in truth and in spirit. However, there's a certain decency that the Lord expects because God has never been the God of chaos. Am I right? What does the Bible say about people, for example, a good example for this 
is speaking in tongues communally as a church, right? If you look at the, the guidelines here, I'm going to read a few verses for you. First Corinthians 14, verse 27 onwards. If, if um, 26 onwards, how is it then, brethren, whenever you come together, each of you has a song. So one person is singing, right? Each of you has a teaching. One person is preaching. Another person is speaking in tongues. Another person has a revelation. Well, this, this guy has an interpretation to that guy's tongues. Now they're all just mixing it up and just like all, all screaming at the same time. Now he tells them, but do all things. Let all things be done for edification. So if you're doing something, may it be because you're building somebody up, not because you want to look good. Not because you're building up your worship profile, not because you're trying to gain your social media profile, right? None of these things. You're doing it to build somebody up. If anyone speaks in a tongue, let there be two or three at the most, each in turn, and let one interpret. If there's no interpreter, let him keep silent in church and let him speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak and let the others judge. But if anything is revealed to another who sits by, let the first one keep silent. What is my point? My point is God is not the author of confusion. That's why the Bible says in verse 33, he's not the author of confusion, but of peace as in all the churches of the ch saints. So wherever churches were, there was peace, there was order, there was decency. Now, if Brother Jaron is prophesying and I cut him off and I'm like, oh, if his time's up, it's my turn to, you know, start speaking in tongues and I just go off. Is there any decency in that? Is there any order in that? God never does that. God is not somebody who tells you to just do whatever you want. You know, you do you and he'll do him. No, right? God is, an, God is a God of order and decency. So those that move in the spirit, it comes naturally to you. It comes naturally to you. I will worship him. I will praise him. And the Holy Spirit will say, time to stop. Time to let that person do his part. And the Lord will constrain you of your limits and of your timing as well. At the same time, the churches shouldn't push people towards certain time constraints if they see that the Spirit of God is doing something. Who are you to stand in the way of the Holy Spirit? So that's why I always appreciate Prayer House. They have... Um, important rules to follow as far as time, but they're also open to the voice of the Holy Spirit. So just follow Prayer House's example, right? We follow time, but we also listen to the Spirit and we stay back if we need to. Uh, that's why you're all going to be here till midnight today and uh, just continue to listen to me talk. No, I'm kidding. We'll finish on time. Amen. Thank you. Thank you for that answer. Um, so the next question is going to be doing... We'll be talking about the realm of the Holy Spirit. So um, just like an FYI for anyone who is on this call who may not completely understand uh, the depth of this question, we do have all, um, Angel has spoken about the Holy Spirit and the gifts of the Spirit. And it's on our Spotify page, all recorded. So you can definitely go back there and check it out and, you know, understand the depth of what she's going to speak about. So I'll just jump into the question. So is it absolutely necessary that every person has to be filled with the gift of tongues? Can everyone be filled? That's the part one. And the part two would be, yeah, you can just answer the first one. Okay. So uh, give me a minute. I'm going to turn to John chapter three. Verse, um, yeah, verse three onwards. Jesus answered and said to him, most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. I'm going to skip down to verse five. Jesus said, most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water, and the spirit 
he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So does everybody need to speak in tongues? No. But does everybody need to be filled with the Holy Spirit to enter the kingdom of God? Hard yes. Absolutely yes. 200,000% yes. Right? Every single one of you must be filled in the Holy Spirit for you to enter the kingdom of God. And I believe it was something like 14 weeks, uh, if I'm not wrong, maybe 12, 13, something like that. Uh, a lot of weeks uh, we spent going through scripture after scripture, uh, detail by detail, all of the gifts of the Holy Spirit, what it means to be filled in the Holy Spirit, how you know that you have the Holy Spirit, all of these things were discussed in detail uh, over a long period of time. And like uh, our brother mentioned, it's all on Spotify. You're welcome to go check that out. Make sure you uh, check out Prayer House's podcast with other speakers' teachings as well. But in short, you must receive the Holy Spirit, but not everyone will end up speaking in tongues. Now, the Bible says the Holy Spirit gives each one of us gifts, listen to this, according to His will and in proportion to your ministry. Whatever your calling is, in proportion to your ministry will be your gifts. In other words, the Lord gives you what you need to carry out your purpose here on earth. Amen. And um, yes, now the follow-up would be, other than the fruit of the Holy Spirit, is there any way, uh, how else can you discern a person being filled by the Spirit? Because um, normally people say, you know, look at the fruit. Uh, is there any way to discern without the fruit of the Spirit? Mm -hmm. Well, <clears throat> my thing is, if something is not broken, why fix it, right? The best way to tell if you have the Holy Spirit is the fruits of the Holy Spirit. But on top of that, if you want more of that, then of course we have the gifts of the Holy Spirit. But most importantly, I think turn with me to the book of Romans chapter 8. Most importantly, I think one of the best ways you can truly figure out uh, if the Holy Spirit is within you is right here. Romans chapter 8 verse 26. Likewise, the Holy Spirit also helps us in our weaknesses for we do not know what we should pray for as we ought to pray but the spirit himself he himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered another related scripture passage is john 7 37 38 and 39 we talked about this on prayer house the other day uh, he who believes in jesus christ out of his heart will flow rivers of living water and this he spoke concerning the Holy Spirit. So a few more ways I think that I can just kind of think off the top of my head. Two big ones I would say is number one, your ability to feel a spiritual burden when you see people around you, right? Where the Spirit of God makes intercession, not for you alone, but for the people around you. When you see someone and you're able to see their pain you're able to literally adopt somebody's pain adopt somebody's problem you make it your own and then you don't just carry it on you 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 allow the spirit of god to speak through you in intercession so my question to you would be when was the last time you wept and prayed for someone else that you were not related to somebody who can uh, uh somebody who has the gift of intercession would tell you this it's the most 
incredible experience. You guys, nothing has humbled me more than to realize that I come to the presence of God and the Lord shows me people and all of a sudden a huge burden grips me. It's not because I know their situation. Most of the time I don't. It's because the spirit of God is making intercession through me. Um, I think that's a powerful way, your ability to intercede for others with true spiritual burden. And of course, rivers flowing through you, meaning God is using you in various ways. You didn't just receive it. It's now manifesting. The light didn't just hit you. The light is hitting others through you. Uh, the water didn't just fill you. It's now filling others through you. An outward manifestation. Um, of course, a good example right there is intercession, outward manifestations. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you for answering the question. Uh, just to, another question is repetitive, but I just wanted to clarify. The question is, can people do miracles um, but do not speak in tongues? So I'm guessing the miracles are referring to like healing and other um, other gifts. So just, yeah, just to clarify. Yeah, I'll, I'll quickly touch on it um, because we discussed it already, but here's the verse for you. First Corinthians chapter 12, verses eight, uh, verses seven, all the way down to 11. Uh, and one, uh, one thing that I want to point out is the importance of two words that are repeated over and over and over in these passages. The two words are to another, to another, to another. Over and over and over again, you will see the words to another. Here it is, to another, the word of knowledge, to another, faith, to another, working of miracles, to another, prophecy, so on and so forth, to another tongues, etc, etc. So this by itself tells you that they don't have to coincide, right? To another, if one person is able to do miracles, like if Jaron touches people and, and his shadow heals people like Peter's did, but he doesn't speak in tongues, that's okay. To another is given the gift of tongues. And so the Lord will use the other person and that gift to touch someone through that gift. Whoever Jaron is not able to touch through the gift of prophecy, this person who speaks in tongues will be used by God to touch and so on and so forth. This is why the church of God is known as the body of Christ. We are one body. You guys, the eyes see, the ears hear, the tongue speaks, the nose smells, the hands do stuff, the legs walk, the stomach takes food, the intestines process it. And you know what? Pokes it out, so on and so forth. Every person in the church has a different process, a different purpose. And so, like I said again, I'm going to repeat it, in proportion to your ministry are your gifts. You don't always have to have every gift under heaven. However, my experience has been, if you're truly committed and you've been in ministry long enough, you'll see this. Um, sometimes all nine gifts manifest through you. Maybe one time you spoke in tongues and another time tongues don't come to you. The Lord is speaking prophecy through you. Another time you're preaching without tongues. Another time miracles happen without tongues or tongues are spoken without miracles, so on and so forth. I do, I do believe God can use you in any capacity if you surrender yourself. But no, the short answer is they don't always have to be together. Okay, uh, thank you for that um, answer and for the uh, clarity on, on that question. Um, right now, we're going to go to one of the questions in the Q&A. Um, so this was actually a follow-up to the very first question about uh, mm -hmm. modesty. Mm -hmm. um, so the person asks, uh, dressing in a revealing way is a vague term and sometimes a stressful concept for people to abide by when there are different standards of what is revealing or what is not around the world. Could this be clarified? 
Yeah, yeah. Um, I would have to. Uh, I think I get. I would have to get get more details from you to truly answer you, give you a good answer. But in general, right? In general, certain things should not be revealed, right? Certain things are um, certain, or I should say, certain parts of your body uh, should not be revealed. That is universally accepted, right? Certain private areas should not be. I'm sure you don't. You don't disagree with me, so I'm sure we agree on that part. However. Uh, like I said, take your cultural audience or the cultural environment you live in into consideration. For example, if you are, uh, let's say, in the Middle East, right, your face should not be revealed. So if you're wearing clothing that reveals your face, that's called what? Revealing clothing. So like you said, in different cultures, different standards of what's revealing is held. So my question to you is, in this country, I'm assuming you're from here. If you're not, you'll have to tell me where you're from so we can customize that answer to your epicenter, to the place that you belong to, right? So if in America, right, I know we, I mean, technically in America, you can walk around naked and you'll be fine or practically naked and you'll be fine. But my question to you is, after a certain degree, you become nothing more than a distraction, Amen. After a certain point, you become nothing more than a distraction. So my question to you is, if your clothing is so revealing, uh, depending on the context, that that person that you're interacting with is distracted by the degree of re revealing or the degree of uh, what you're showing, then then your witness is hindered because of what you're showing, right? So like I used the extreme example in the Middle East, if I'm talking to a Muslim man and he's hindered by me revealing my face, what am I going to do? Yeah, I'm going to totally put, put a covering on and be like, yeah, let me talk to you, man. I, I, I want to talk to you about Jesus. Now, if I'm in America and nobody cares if my face is covered or uncovered, no problem. But at the same time, I will maintain what is considered uh, culturally appropriate, right? What is culture considered culturally appropriate without causing somebody to stumble, without causing somebody to think, oh, what else is behind what I see, right? Without causing somebody's eyes uh, to go wide with questions or temptations, without hindering the person that you're interacting with. So there's no universal answer here because cultures vary. But what is universally accepted? is that according to the scriptures, like I said, propriety, what is appropriate to the place that you're in, right? Now, that doesn't mean you should accept what the, what the world thinks is acceptable, right? Now, like nowadays, I, I'm sorry to say this, like, for example, extreme feminists think, right, that it's okay to go without undergarments, right? Your upper, like, bra and that kind of stuff. Is that okay to accept that? No, right? Because when I reveal that much, what have I done? I have put somebody's eyes on alert. I have stirred up somebody's mind. I have possibly led someone towards lust. Maybe I have led someone to look at me in a bad way. So my question is, are you dressing to impress somebody? Are you dress, dressing to fit into a particular culture? Whichever, whichever one the, the true answer falls into, it doesn't, it doesn't fall into the acceptable range. You shouldn't dress to fit into your culture. You shouldn't dress just because others are doing it. Follow what is culturally appropriate. Like for example, Indian women wear saris, but what shows in a sari? 
right? Your side, your muffin tops, like I have like 50,000 muffin tops, y'all. No, I'm kidding. Now, those things show, right? But is it okay? Is it acceptable? Most of the time, right? Most of the time, nobody minds that, but it can hinder somebody. So know who your audience is, right? So wear a churidar if that's what you need to do. So my, my, I guess my short answer would be use your cultural uh, situational senses. Who are you talking to? Would this hinder somebody? Pray about it if you have to, if you don't know the answer. And at the end of the day, if you have to go with safer, better safe than sorry, wear the most conservative clothing, and I don't think you'll offend anybody. If, 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 if you don't know the answer, just err on the side of safety and, and wear conservatively. This way you don't hinder anybody. Um, yeah, again, thank you for clarifying that question. And thank you for whoever um, submitted that question. We, we wanted to remind you guys that we do have the Q&A um, function. If you guys have any questions, um, you can uh, submit in uh, questions there. Um, so for the next question, it's actually a question that um, I came up with. I'm sure it's a question that you have probably, uh, uh, people have asked you too. So it is, uh, what is the biblical biblical response to women in ministry? Can women uh, speak or preach to a congregation of men and women, not just like women at a ladies meeting? Um, what about women in leadership roles? Um, and I also put in, how would you respond to uh, like the verses in 1 Timothy 2, 11 through 12, uh, verse 11 through 12 where it says a woman should learn in quietness and full submission um, where Paul says he does not permit a woman to teach or assume authority over a man she must be quiet or 1 Corinthians 14 uh, 34 to 35 uh, where Paul writes women should remain silent in the churches they are not allowed to speak but must be in submission as the law says if they were want to inquire about something they should ask their own husbands at home for it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in church Thank you. I know these are very, very sensitive questions. Um, I'm going to, I know you threw, you threw a few scriptures at me. Um, and if I don't cover something, please remind me towards the end. I'm trying to come back to one scripture that I thought was most clear on the subject. I believe it's 1 Timothy chapter 2 um, and verse uh, 11 and 12. Okay, here's what it says. Let a woman learn in silence with all submission. Her emphasis on the word learn, right? And I do not permit a woman, here's the another emphasis, to teach or to have authority over, over a man, but to be in silence. But the key, the key to the scripture is, I do not permit. The key to the scripture is, I do not permit. This is Paul writing, I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man, but to be in silence. One, one more scripture I want to throw before I give you my answer. Mark 7, verse 7. And in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Listen carefully. People are worshiping God in vain when they teach as doctrines the commands of men. Very, very important. Very important to distinguish doctrines of the Bible from commands of men. So in, the, in light of that, that verse, they're teaching as doctrines uh, the commandments of men. In vain, they worship me. Our worship is nullified. It is vain. If you take man-made thoughts and you enforce them as God-made commandments, that's why Paul says, I do not permit. That's the first thing I want to point out. The second thing I want to point out is that throughout Paul's ministry, especially in the book of Romans chapter 8, uh, Paul 
Paul writes to a number of uh, individuals uh, where he, I'm trying to find the scripture for you, uh, Romans chapter 16. And in, in a number of scriptures, uh, starting from verses 3 to 16, you can find many women are addressed. Uh, in particular, Sister Phoebe is being addressed here, and, and he says, Sister Phoebe was a deacon of a church. Another person, that, another woman that's addressed here is Aquila. Aquila was, uh, sorry, is, is Priscilla, who was the wife of Aquila. Interestingly enough, just a fun fact I noticed the other day, you never see the scripture say Aquila and Priscilla. You always see Priscilla and Aquila. It's very interesting. Every time Paul writes, he always writes the wife's name first, which is not customary, right? Uh, it, it, some scholars think it could possibly mean that she was taking a bigger role. And so he often wrote Priscilla and Aquila and never Aquila and Priscilla. And so many women are being addressed throughout the scripture, uh, in, including a woman named Sister Persis, a woman named Sister Phoebe, uh, the, a woman named Sister Junia, and a woman named, like I said, uh, uh, Priscilla is mentioned here, and so on and so forth. I'm sure I was able to find more. I just didn't write them down. Uh, but you're welcome to go through this um, Nereus and his sister is being mentioned there. Sister is unnamed there. Over and over, he writes to many women who were in charge of churches, right? The churches of Christ. He writes over and over. And the church which meets in their house, my fellow prisoners who were among me, who were among the apostles. So Junia, a woman named Junia is an apostle. So you can see how an apostle, like Paul the apostle, took a lot of leadership over the church in Junia and Andronicus's house. It's in verse seven. And Phoebe, who was a deacon of the church, you can see how she took a lot of leadership roles and in fact, when Paul writes to Timothy, he mentions how deacons should be teachers well-versed in doctrine. So deacons should be well-versed in doctrine, meaning that they should be able to preach the doctrine and they should know the doctrine well. So when he calls Phoebe a, a deacon and then he says deacons are, should, should be able to uh, efficiently preach, that tells you that Phoebe was a deacon who was well worst in the doctrines and she was eloquently preaching the word of God so on and so forth because there are so many women that Paul addresses throughout the scriptures throughout his ministry even in the church of Corinth we find certain women there and if you want a, a bigger list of it please let me know I'll make a list and I'll, I can shoot it out to you guys I just didn't prepare for this question adequately I think as far as names are concerned but I do know this that we must never teach as commandments of God, that which are commands from men. So this concept of let women learn in silence, as he writes to the Corinthian church, that was because there was much gossip in that church. And women tended to be very loud and obnoxious in that church. And all scholars and all historians unanimously agree on that point. It's not because he didn't want women to be leaders, because you see him greeting them and exhorting them over and over and in fact appointing them in certain places. So this tells me that it's not that he didn't want women to be in leadership. It's just that he didn't want women in certain places and in certain contexts to cause disturbances. And in, in whichever context he didn't allow them to teach or preach, it was him, right? I did not permit. It was a command from Paul. So what I cannot do is I cannot teach to you a command from Paul as a command from God. That's why Paul specifically writes, 
I do not permit. Elsewhere, in, I believe it's 1 Corinthians 5, when he talks about marriage, he writes, this is not from the Lord, but I say unto you. So specifically, he writes, this is not from God, but this is my personal opinion. So over and over, Paul is very careful to distinguish what he believes God, uh, God says and what he believes he, uh, he, he wanted to execute. He wanted to practice. He says, this is not from God. This is from me concerning marriage. And in this portion, he says, I do not permit. So these are commands of Paul, number one. And number two, he was not against women because the overwhelming uh, examples I've given you show that he was in support of the many women who held leadership and teaching roles within the church. Amen. Thank you. Yeah, just showing us the importance of this, every single question and how important it is to uh, read the word, you know, and understand the context and understand, you know, the back and forth of what he means and uh, what the person in the scripture is saying. So um, the next question, uh, something from the Q&A is, is it possible for a man or woman to be a pastor or anyone in leadership, I'm assuming, um, who, but they have been divorced? So any divorced member? Yeah, I think it's a very interesting question. Uh, I would need to know more, first of all, about the context of the divorce, right? Like, why did this person get divorced? Because there's only one grounds for divorce, according to the scriptures, that would be adultery or sexual promiscuity or immorality uh, that was beyond the bounds of that marriage. Now, if the divorce was for that reason and this person ended up getting divorced, uh, is it fair to tell that person to step down? I'm not quite sure. The Bible is uh, pretty silent as far as I know. If any of you know more than me, uh, I'll, I'll be happy to learn from you. Um, but as far as I know, the Bible is pretty silent on that topic in particular. However, the Bible is not silent on the topic of widows, right? Uh, and, and, the, and the types of people who should be in leadership. And so just turn with me very quickly, 1 Timothy chapter 3. And the qualifications for somebody who are overseers or who are like, you know, leaders or pastors or deacons or bishops uh, in Timothy's time, they were, they, were, they were referred to as bishops, right? But we know that in the fivefold ministry, there's no bishop ministry, there's a pastor ministry. So bishop and pastor are synonymous in this context. He writes, a bishop then must be blameless, a husband of one wife temperate, sober-minded, good behavior, hospitable, able to teach, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, gentle, not quarrelsome, not covetous, rules his own house well, rules his own children well, etc., etc., etc. You're welcome to go read through that. So at the end of the day, uh, verse 8 onwards, you can find the rules and regulations for deacons. At the end of the day, what I believe is the ideal setting for somebody to lead in ministry is it's better for a pastor to be married to a wife because of several reasons. One, or a husband, I should have said that, married to a wife or a husband, right? So basically in a committed godly marriage, it's better for you to oversee other people's families if you can have a family of your own that you are able to rule appropriately. That's my point. That's the point I'm trying to make. Uh, somebody who's married and able to rule their own house appropriately uh, is a qualification. It's a, it's a determining qualification before you can become a bishop, according to this scripture passage. Uh, this is a faithful saying, he says, if anyone desires that position, 
this is what he needs to be. So he writes, if you desire to be a pastor, this is what you need to be. So one reason I think is, one, you've learned how to rule your house. Therefore, you know how to rule a church. Two, there's no room for people to place blame on you, right? If you have a faithful wife and a wife has a faithful husband, and you can show the example of a godly family, there's less room for people to place blame on you. There's less room for people to look at you and say, maybe you did this, or maybe you're doing that. There's less room for that. And number three, it shows that you have the ability to stay committed to something right? It shows one, it shows God himself that you're faithful and you're committed to a spouse. Therefore, you will be committed to the ministry he's given to you. Two, it shows the church that. It shows the children in the church, the young people in the church, what it looks like to be committed to God and to be committed to people. So uh, several reasons I can keep going, but the three big ones that come to mind are these three. So I think it is important for people to be married when they're in ministry. Now, if they end up getting divorced, I would think to myself, uh, heaven forbid this happened to me, but I would think to myself, if that was ever me, heaven forbid, I rebuke that in the name of Jesus. Uh, but if that was ever me, I would think to myself, this is time for me to heal in the presence of God. This is time for me to receive from the presence of God. I'm going through a very difficult time of life where I've lost somebody that I was literally one flesh with. This is not a joke, right? This is serious stuff. So if this is happening to me, I would think that I'm not in a place to really minister to anybody. I am in a very broken space. I'm in a space of uh, needing serious self-contemplation, self-examination. If there was sexual immorality or adultery within a marriage, there's a lot of stuff that goes behind that, right? There's a lot of things that goes behind that. I don't have time at all to go there. You guys had a whole relationship week, so I'm assuming you would have learned a lot of things from there but if sexual adultery is happening within a marriage there was a lot of things that were not addressed and that has led to this point so if i am if if somebody is ever in a divorced state because of adultery then i would think this person probably wants to be and needs to be in god's presence for a lot of redoing a lot of remaking he's a broken person she's a broken vessel uh broken and shattered and in pain this would be time to be quiet in god's presence and let somebody lead and let the lord kind of take it from there that would be my suggestion but the bible is largely silent but just kind of extrapolating from what is here uh, my suggestion would be it would be ideal if you are married, if you're divorced, for the right reasons, you need the Lord's presence alone, you need time in God's presence. If you're divorced for the wrong reasons, well, you've already disqualified yourself from the leadership position. So yes, you should step down if you're divorced for any other reasons beyond what the Bible allows. Um, so there's um, actually a follow-up question to that. Mm -hmm. um, and they asked, what if they committed adultery and they're totally at fault, but you are not? Yeah, exactly. Like I told you, right? If somebody has committed adultery, I'm not saying you should remove them from position as a punishment. In fact, um, I'm not sure if you're a married uh, questioner. I don't know if you're married or not. But just, just as a, a wife to a husband, I would tell you if there was sexual immorality in my marriage and adultery has taken place, 
the Lord forbid. And if ever that, that becomes the case, I would tell you 110% that I would take a step back because there's a lot that needs to be done within me. I'm not sure if I would be very useful to people when I'm in, in such a grievous position, just like somebody who lost a wife or a husband who needs time to grieve. Divorce is not just, oh, you cheated, you cheated uh, you know, with somebody else and I totally hate you. It's not so simple. You truly love this person. You were one flesh, right? One body with this person. Like you have given so much of who you are to this person. Mind, body, and spirit has been invested into this marriage. So just like losing a husband, like, you know, when somebody dies, this is a time of grief. I would think that I need time to grieve. I need time to, for the Lord to build me up. I need time to see the Lord bring grace into my pain. I need time to experience God and, uh, and just kind of grow, in, grow from this experience. So sometimes um, a wise minister knows when he is able to go and pour into somebody and when he needs to be poured into. Same thing with a woman, right? Sometimes you need to step back and allow the Lord to pour into you. And I do that often. I have to step back and I will allow the Lord to pour into me. I never say no to invitations, but I do take time to receive from God. And then I go out to pour into others. It's really important to do that. So I would think if somebody is in a divorce because the spouse is cheated, there's a lot of grief that needs to be uh, experienced and dealt with. And so I'm not saying they should step down as a punishment. You need to get off because you're not married. I'm not saying that. That would be unloving. Uh, it would be loving, though, to say you're going through a very tough time. You don't have to be here. Take time to heal. Take time to be in God's presence. Take time to grow back. Come back stronger. Come back stronger. Come back and, and shake the world for Jesus. I would, I would extend somebody that kind of grace. It would be cruel to make them keep giving out when they're suffering. Uh, thank you for that answer. Um, so now we're going to, we don't, we have a one question left. Um, I just want to say thank you to everyone who had submitted questions. Um, there was a question in there about different denominations that actually goes with our topic for Thursday. So stay tuned mm -hmm. for that. Um, so the last question we have for you today is what are the limits of a church becoming progressive when there are two mm -hmm. generations involved in the church? How can there be a balance? Yeah, 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 yeah. Very, very, very good question. I'm going to address this briefly because I know we're already out of time. Uh, but I'll be happy to have personal conversations with anybody who would like to have one. So really quickly turn with me 1 Timothy chapter 5 verses 1 and 2. I wanted to read to you 1 Timothy 5, 1 and 2. Do not rebuke an older man, but exhort him as a father. Younger men, exhort them as brothers. Older women, exhort them as mothers. Younger women, as sisters with all purity. And so what Paul is teaching Timothy, remember the context of this conversation though, Timothy's a young guy, right? He's this young, hip pastor, uh, newly ordained. He's about to take over the church in the city of the Ephesians. So if you didn't know that, he became the pastor to the Ephesian church. And so now he's sitting in the, over the church of the Ephesians and God says to uh, Timothy through Paul uh, about this about this generational gap that he might experience. He knows that there are older men in the church, so he tells Timothy, "I know you're a young guy, you're young in ministry, 
Now, to bridge this gap between the two generations, Paul tells him, make sure you don't rebuke old people. Just because they're older and they're kind of stuck in their ways, they, they tend to be stubborn. I get it. Um, but don't rebuke them. Instead, exhort them like a father, right? Exhort them like, your own, like you would your father. The second thing I want to show you is a, a, a few verses back in chapter 4, verses 12. He says, let no one despise your youth right? But be an example in word, in conduct, in love, in spirit, in faith, in purity. I'm going to jump down a little bit. Verse 13, until I come, give attention to three things. Are you ready? Write it down. Write it down. I'm serious. Write it down. Give attention to three things. Reading, exhortation, doctrine. Reading, exhortation, doctrine. Then he says, meditate on these things. Give yourself entirely to them that your progress, your progressivism, your progress is evident to everybody. So when you have a bi-generational or a multi-generational church, the first thing to do is to never, ever, ever rebuke somebody for their uh, age-related belief systems, right? 50 above, they believe one thing. 50 and below, they believe something else. Don't hate each other. Don't yell at each other. Encourage each other. But as young people, you as young people, what should you do? You should be an example to your older apachans and amachis and tatapatis and grandma, grandpas. You should be an example to them in word, in conduct, in love, in spirit, in faith, and in your purity. But most importantly, focus on doctrine. Because what unites a church, whether, it, whether you're multi-generational, multicultural, multi-ethnic, whatever, whatever, doesn't matter. Whoever you are as a church body, what unites you is the doctrine of the word of God. What unites you is your common belief in the unchanging word of God. This is what unites you. And so if you guys can come to agreement on the scripture and stay there, that's the church that's truly progressive, if you ask me. Now, of course, there's a lot of things about progressivism in a political sense, but three big things that I can think of is gender equality, marriage equality, and social, social, socialist type of thinking, like healthcare, education for all, etc. These are all part of the core of progressivism. I'm not going to get into that. I'm just going to point you as a church, as a church in a progressive world, stay rooted in reading, exhorting each other, and in doctrine. If you can do that as a young man, as, a, as young men and as older men, as young women, as older women, when you all come together and you're doing nothing but exhorting each other through the scriptures, reading the scriptures as a church and rooted in the doctrine, there will be no problem getting along. There will be no problem bringing the generations together. Nothing like the word of God to keep the church glued together in unity. Thanks for tuning in. We pray that this message has been a blessing to you, and we encourage you to keep searching God's word and listening to his voice. We'll see you again on the next one.